Hi, I'm Trevor Philp. And I'm Eric Reed. And welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 76 of the Functional Tennis Podcast, a bonus episode. This episode, I step outside the world of tennis to see what life is like as a professional skier. I speak to Trevor Phillip and Eric Reed, two Canadian Olympic athletes and World Cup skiers. They're among the best in the world and they tell us all about their journey to the top of the slopes. It was great to get outside the world of tennis and see some similarities in a different sport. If you enjoy this episode or don't, please let me know as it's something I'd like to do more in the future, but only a few guys would like to listen to. A shout out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger. I'm actually in lockdown at the minute and have my Slinger bag on charge. I can't wait to get out and use it. If you have any questions at all about the Slinger bag, you can DM the guys over on their Instagram account or you can send me a mail. I've been used it enough now that I should be able to answer your questions. Hi guys, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. This is something completely different. We've never had any non-tennis guests on the show, but big thanks to Dominique who set this up and really excited to see how skiing compares to tennis and what sort of team you had and how you grew up and how you got to where you are, Olympic athletes. So yeah, maybe you want to both introduce yourselves. Um, I'm Eric Reed from Alberta. I grew up uh, in a ski family, so that was kind of the weekend activity we did together and took off from there. I played tennis growing up at a, in Calgary called the Glencoe Club more casually until I was about 10 years old, but really started to pursue skiing more as I was kind of going along. And yeah, I'm excited to be here today, kind of share some insight on a uh, different sport and, you know, c- contrast the similarities and differences because, you know, maybe we can both learn a thing or two today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you, Trevor? Yeah, I'm uh, Trevor, also from Calgary, Alberta. Um, I grew up very similar to uh, Eric in the sense we came from the same ski club, uh, Banff Mountain Arcway. I'm also a member of the Glencoe. That's where I play tennis. Um, so till I was about 13 years old, I did competitive tennis and skiing equally. They were both my sports. Our two family sports were tennis and skiing. Um, and then at 13, I had to decide kind of one way or the other, and skiing was the more natural choice for me at the time. Um, yeah. And uh, excited for this podcast too. <laughs> Normally, people I speak to, they get to that age of 12, 13, 14, and they're soccer players. Some are skiers, be it uh, Djokovic or Yannick Sinner, who's, I'm not sure if you know Yannick Sinner. He's an upcoming Italian 19 year old. He used to be a top underage Italian skier. So, skiing definitely helps tennis players with the balance and agility. But how come you made the decision to go skiing? What was the factor? For sure, I was better at skiing. I was I was always in the top few um, in Alberta. There, tennis, I was in say the top group, but Alberta was maybe not the strongest province within Canada. And then uh, I think there was just a better chance at skiing um, for me to make it. So that was the the decision at the time. But I had also heard that. Um, well, I know Sinner. I didn't know he was a um, a ski racer, but I heard Djokovic uh, loves skiing. And I know Bodie Miller, who's a great skier, loves tennis. So I'd heard quite a few over the years who are the top in tennis or skiing uh, had done both. So that was interesting to me. I think a lot of the lateral movement is, is similar in both. Definitely, I agree. And tell me, Eric, 
How many hours as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old are you spending on the ski slopes? At that age, you're usually trying to get out like two to four times a week, kind of four to five hour sessions. Uh, I think it's still mostly just about fun and skill development. And growing up, that's how I viewed it as my winter sport was was skiing. And I was always looking for stuff on the summer to kind of enjoy being like out there, being athletic. And so that's where tennis came in, soccer. And it was like really able to find a balance um, over the years until I really focused in on skiing. And that's kind of when more of a commitment when you start going to summer camps, uh, skiing on glaciers over the summer, and then spending more time um, throughout the winter and week skiing more than just two or three days and having to find a balance then between the sport and school. So um, that's like most sports, the ages that you start to hone in, um, kind of 15, 16, I would say. And is that when it gets serious, when you decide in the summertime, we need to go find some snow somewhere? Is that the, that's the moment where, you know, I'm in deep here? Uh, I think that's when you start to get a taste of what a uh, lifestyle of a skier will be like. Because growing up, it's just about being exposed to so many different skills. And then you, you get to the age where um, you, you actually start, you need to start building that volume once you kind of hit puberty and your, your body's developing and maturing. So um, yeah, that's kind of just the, the natural pathway. Yeah, it must be tough if you're just going to ski six months a year or less than that and then disappear for six months. Like right now, where I know we're, I'm skipping forward here and we jump back, but you guys... What do you do when there's no skiing on? So summertime, do you do what? I know some other Olympic athletes do a couple of sports. What are you concentrating on that helps your skiing in the off season? Yeah, our off season is, I guess, unique in that in Canada, you're not skiing because we uh, don't have hills that are open. But we, so we spend a good block of time, a couple of months or a few months um, in the gym, getting physically ready for the next season. But then we also go chase snow. So we'll go usually like two trips throughout the summer, um, if for us, the last many years, except for this year, was one down to Argentina. So we'll go down there and ski for a month during their winter and then come over to Europe and do a few weeks on the glaciers because we can access the glaciers in Italy or um, Switzerland um, and ski in the summer. So we know in the summer, we uh, mixed in with some dry land. And then uh, in the winter, it's full time on snow. I'll chime in there too. I think I already mentioned it, how you kind of just need to be like an overall well-established uh, athlete not really focus on any one particular skill to be a successful skier and so that's where you can really find um activities hobbies that like can still be fun and um really contributes to your skiing like i uh really got into the climbing a year ago and i think just kind of that body awareness and and movement that transitions to skiing and similar to what trevor already said about tennis it's like uh that change of direction and that ability to adapt to what you see like um out, outside stimulus so um it's really kind of just finding what's fun and using that as a as a different pathway to or a different way to build skills for your on snow prep yeah it's great that you get the time to do that or you get the time to just you know get away from skiing for a while and the hunger comes but i know not saying you lose hunger but you're just pumped at the start of the season because you haven't skied in so long you're like come on hit the next slope but so going back to kids uh, before we move on to college was there like, I know Eric mentioned he represented, sorry, you guys were the best in the country. So was there like a Canadian skiing federation that took you under its wing at that age? Not that young. You get invited to camps. Um, but until the national team doesn't start for most, I guess the youngest age could be 
17, but for us was maybe 18. Um, so that's when you actually get picked up. But in the juniors and the, I don't know what's called now, U12, 14, 16, they'll often bring together the kids for like one time a year or twice a year for camp. Um, so it's just stuff like that. And then you see the whole, what the whole nation is doing. Uh, but otherwise you're mostly for in juniors, you're uh, kind of pr- um, competing and training more regionally. And do you train, like I know tennis, obviously the juniors, the under 12s and the 14s, there's world championships and there's tournaments on all over Europe and the world and it becomes, they quit school, they go play. Some do, not all of them. Is there the same on the skiing tour or it's just not, there's only the senior events or is there international junior events? Uh, yeah, there's actually children events. There's a couple of famous ones, um, one in Italy, actually one in Canada in Whistler. And so growing up, that is kind of the big, that's the prize every year that you're trying to qualify to and then compete against the Norwegians and the Italians. And it, it's a little bit different in that not every country in the world will, will go to it. It's not like a world championship, but there's um, kind of those unique events. And then when you hit 16, that's what we call the fist level. That's when you're transitioning into competing that um, regional races, but also throughout the year at your, the, the full senior nationals and then international competitions too. Okay. And tell me, Trevor, were you guys on, how did you guys do? Did you take part in those competitions? Yeah, we did. Eric was a champion there at the Whistler Cup. That was huge for Canada. Oh, wow. May have been around 10th place, my bet there. But yeah, it was fun. It was cool. The Whistler Cup was neat because we were in Canada. So it was natural for us to go and to see all these uh, international racers. The one national ER, tennis one I did, I did U12 nationals in St. Catharines. So that was the wasn't international, but the team I was brought together with the rest of Canada on the tennis side. Oh, nice. You definitely have the good genetics to play around top in all sports. So great. So let's, let's move on to college. Are you two guys, by the way, the same age or I didn't get your age? Um, I'm a year older than Trevor. I'm 29. He's 28. So that's why we kind of transitioned through this whole, uh, our whole ski tip careers together. When was the decision made uh, to go to university in the States? Um, I took one year off after high school and was with the Canadian prospect team at the time, the Canadian development team. Um, and after that year, I made the decision to go. It was a, was a tough call because at the time, NCAA and national team wasn't done in unison. So you had to pick one or the other. And I knew I wanted to be a World Cup skier. I wanted to do the Olympics. So that was always the ultimate goal. Um, but I decided to kind of take a leap of faith and try, see if I could do NCAA during these kind of development years. So that, yeah, that was my year. At about 19 years old, I went down there and I thought, okay, I'll take it year by year, but see how it goes. As long as I can keep developing, then I'll keep trying to balance both. And luckily I had a great first year and I was invited back to the team. So then for my um, sophomore, junior, senior year at school, I was able to be on the national team and at school. And it was a great experience. Brilliant. That's like in tennis when you're on, you're in your playing for university and you're on the Davis Cup team, which doesn't happen that often. What university were you guys in? University of Denver. And yeah, I actually, even though I'm older, I followed Trev to, to school. I was the 23-year-old freshman. Um, <laughs> I finished high school. I wrote my SATs right away. So just knew that was kind of an opportunity I might step into down the road. But took uh, four or five gap years to like really focus on skiing. And actually was trending pretty well, but then kind of ran into some injuries and struggles with equipment because that's such an important part of our sport. Um, and then decided that Trev had had so much success that I, I valued my education and went down there um, and actually, I think, progressed more in skiing. That's when I scored my first World Cup points the year I was balancing uh, university-level school and uh, World Cup, sir. Wow. So before we talk about the World Cup, you guys were both NCAA champions. 
Yeah, we were, we were both champions in different years. We only had one overlap. I, I was fortunate enough to win the individual championship uh, in the 2016 uh, slalom. So that was like such a cool experience. And what's different about NCAA skiing compared to World Cup skiing is it's a, it's a team event. Um, actually worked in with uh, Nordic skiing as well. And so girls, guys, and this other sport, we're all scoring points together, which is a totally different um, approach to the to it than uh, just being out there on the hill fighting for your own uh, personal results. So I think that's also kind of a cool mental aspect of what NCAA does is like the, the emphasis and the value on the team. Really, if you want to succeed, you have to uh, raise the level for everybody. I think that's the same in most university sports where they tend to be in the States around the team, whether it's tennis or not, there's the single sports are just based around the team, which is amazing because anybody who goes on to single sports then after university misses the team element of it. With skiing, I, a bit of me sees skiing as a team sport in a way because you guys are always with your country members. You're always, you know, the Canadians are together, the Americans are together, the Italians are together, but it's such a, a singular sport. Does, how expensive is it traveling as a skier on your own? What does the federation pay for? What do you guys have to pay for? Yeah, it, I mean, it is a very uh, individual sport in, in the competition, but throughout the whole year, if you look at everything, it's completely a team sport. We travel everywhere together, um, work out in the off season together. And it's so important to have coaches, therapists, um, trainers, uh, and um, ski technicians. So it's really a full team that we travel around with. And uh, with that, a very expensive sport. So we, um, Alpine Canada is our governing body. That's which team we're part of. And we, depending on what level you are, we pay to be part of the team. And then uh, Alpine Canada covers our costs throughout the year for our travel and um, food and lodging. And how many people are on a team, Eric? Um, so... We're, we're definitely a small team this year. We have two coaches, one head and an assistant. Uh, Dom, who's our, our chiro, our therapist. And then we have our ski, ski man, a ski technician. And he's the one that's out there. <laughs> he, he arguably has the hardest job where he's out there helping prep the, the slope all day and then has to go downstairs into the ski room and prep the skis in the afternoon. So yeah, huge, huge props to him um, and everything he does. Usually you look at some of the other teams, like the Swiss and the Austrians, they're, they're kind of like the powerhouse nations. And they'll have um, usually, like sometimes even two ski men for one athlete, whereas we're, we're close of us with one guy. So it, it really is kind of David versus Goliath at times. But um, I think it's still an opportunity to, to succeed regardless, regardless of the team size. And what's the average age of the team member i would say like coming into the national team you, you usually qualify around 18 um but we're seeing it kind of similar to tennis um where there's these guys kind of pushing the the age limit of the sport and so um eric gay who just retired he's one of the most famous canadian skiers just won uh, the world championships back in 2017 at the oldest guy ever and there's a few in the 40s so usually you peak as an alpine skier kind of 27 28 but there's kind of that whole career there's there's a couple 18 year olds breaking onto the circuit and then you have the veterans who are in their 40s right now is tomba still skiing <laughs> <laughs> no but we see him around sometimes there's a there's a yeah. every, around christmas and he always shows up there in italy 
Nice. That's who I remember. He's a famous name back in. I'm, I'm a bit older than you guys. Not that much, but a bit older. Uh, but I remember Tombo well. Maybe you can break down to me the differences. One is uh, between like the slalom, the super G. I know you mentioned the parallel. What are the differences b- between them? So the, the four traditional disciplines or the four main ones, maybe to say, would be slalom, giant slalom, super G and downhill. So Eric and I are tech skiers and that includes slalom and giant slalom. Slalom is the uh, tightest turn. It's the shortest turn. The gates are the closest together. And subsequently, the speed is uh, the slowest of the disciplines. Not that it feels slow when you're going down because the gates are coming at you faster, but they are close together. The next step would be giant slalom, where it's a little bit uh, longer turn and and then super G more. And downhill, the the gates are the farthest apart. There's a lot of tucking when you're in a low position. And and a GS slalom likely follows the, the trail down more, where a downhill... Because it's such a long turn, you kind of follow the contours of the mountain from the, say, the top to the bottom, and that's the fastest. Yeah, I would kind of almost compare it to, uh, like, you look at athletics like a sprinter versus like, at a, like a four hundred meter versus like a five thousand, where it's it's completely different set of skills and body types that you actually see between the different disciplines. And so there's actually, especially these days, where it's very competitive, you're not really seeing people do all four disciplines anymore. Like you can, but you won't be that competitive. So a lot of the time you focus in on one or two, um, and that usually falls on either the speed side, which is the super G downhill or on tech, slalom and GS. And yeah, it's anywhere from in slalom, we ski, like the gates are about nine meters apart to downhill, which is like 60 meters plus. And the guys in the downhill normally the beefier guys out in girls where it's a gravity sport. And so you do see the downhillers packing a little extra weight. <laughs> I love it. And the suits, yeah, the suits can make you look a bit nice and toasty there. But yeah, we've the luxury of video here, news of functional tennis. Uh, you guys so look a bit more like middle of the road, like sort of a slalom weight, slalom build. Is that true? You're not the, you don't look like two massive powerhouses. Hope I, I hope I'm not insulting anybody. <laughs> in it makes sense, does it? What sort of height? Our, our body types for sure are more slalom and giant slalom. If we were going to be a super down millers, we would make a big effort to uh, put on a few more pounds. <laughs> <laughs> if you're working hard <laughs> in the gym yeah not that you don't come on uh, but what sort of I know in tennis obviously the tall guys have an advantage to a certain height and then they start losing movement skills and agility but what's an average size height for a skier I, that's probably the craziest thing about today is that you've got one guy who we actually just trained with the other day he's probably uh, what, 165, 170 centimeters tall. And then you have um, one of the Olympic medalists from Pyeongchang who's like over two... He's two meters. Oh, he's two meters tall. And so there's this huge range of body types that seems to be working right now in the sport. That's what's so cool about skiing is really understanding like what is the best way to maximize the way you're, the, func- the functional ability of your body to go down the slope. So they're typically, I would say kind of six feet is, is pretty standard for a skier, but it's really possible to do it from uh, any body type. Great. That's good when you have opportunity where you're not limited to a certain, used to be a certain size to be successful, be it a racing driver. If you're anyway over like five foot eight, five foot nine, <laughs> yeah. five foot ten, you're going to be too heavy. It's great. Or else you got to die at 24 seven or a horse jockey. Yeah. Those yeah. guys, those guys are always on a diet. But let's get to current day. So you guys are World Cup skiers. We're going to talk about Olympics as well. What's more important, Olympics or World Cup skiing? 
Yeah, really tough question. I think it, it would differ depending who you are asking. For sure, um, in Europe, where the World Cup circuit happens, the World Cup circuit and the globe at the end, if you win the circuit, you win the Crystal Globe. That could arguably be bigger. But I think um, back home for us in North America, the Olympics is what people know. So that's 100% bigger. Um, but yeah, different, I guess, different. Yeah, we always call uh, the biggest race of the year is Kitzbühel. We kind of call that the Super Bowl of our, our sport because that's where you guys like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger showing up every year, Jason State, um, McDreamy, even <laughs> if you know who that is. Um, no, that, I that's don't. like such a big um, uh, event that attracts kind of like 50 to 70,000 people to witness it. But at the end of the day, when you want to have a legacy um, moving forward and kind of go down in the history books, that's where uh, being an Olympic champion doesn't doesn't compare to the other ones. So you guys have taken you have taken part in both. Where have you seen your best results? I've had better in World Cup. The World I mean it's also tricky to say because the World Cup is a circuit every year, so we have to be eight to ten races per discipline, eight ten slalom races, eight ten GS, and always regular stops on the circuit. So we go back to uh, the starts and sold in Austria to start of the year, and then we go to Beaver Creek, Colorado, and then back to uh, Italy. So you follow these, these um, normal stops where the Olympics is every four years, you get one opportunity and it's not normally at a normal stop. So the two that I've been to was in Sochi and in um, South Korea and it's both places I'd never been to before. So the snow is a little different. The surroundings are different. Uh, it's, and it seems to be, it can be a bit of a equalizer or throw off the status quo because the top guys are maybe used to the snow in Europe and they're used to the terrain there. Um, and the whole venue. And then you go somewhere in a different continent and just throws everyone a little bit off. Um, but yeah, so I've definitely I've come to like certain stops on the tour. and But the Olympics is just a special situation, a special uh, experience anyways. I performed well in my first Olympic Games. Uh, I finished 11th and I was super happy that I was in the giant slalom. Uh, the, the unique thing about the difference between World Cup and the Olympics is um, World Cup, you have kind of 70... 80 guys starting and only 30 get to qualify for the second run. So you really have to like perform well uh, right off the bat. And then they actually flip the, the, those top 30 guys. So the last one down the hill is the fastest guy from the first run. It really builds that anticipation. Whereas the we actually see all these crazy countries joining um, like African nations and stuff like that. And you'll have like 140 plus skiers in the Olympic race and then everybody gets a second run. So it's much more inclusive. And you, the big ski nations, which will normally start kind of like 10 guys per World Cup event, only get four for the Olympic Games. Um, so the, the very top level is, is extremely competitive, but then the rest of it is, is super inclusive. I'm similar to Trevor, where my best result has been uh, the World Cup. I, I have a sixth and a seventh place. And Trevor, I think the fifth is best. Um, also have a World Championships uh, silver medal in the team event. Which we're very proud of. So that's a that was a new new event that they added to the last Olympics, and uh, I think a great shot for for Canadians to get an Olympic medal going forward. That's pretty impressive. Like no, very few tennis players. Like the, only the top guys get to represent their country, and that's numbers are so low. Like some of my Irish pro tennis players never will get. Well, the ones that are playing now won't get the chance to represent Ireland the Olympics. They used to allow them years ago. My old coach that rep, think, did three Olympics, crazy. And to him, that was his best memories was the Olympics. And he used to give us his 
his shirts when we were kids, like whoever we sponsored by Mizuno or Sergio Tacchini, and take, but the only shirts he wouldn't give us were his Olympic shirts. It's just, it just meant that much to him. So look, it's, it's great that you guys get to represent your country, opportunity to win medals. I think that's amazing. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the world. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever, which includes the new Court FF3 Novak, the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of Novak Djokovic. Get your pair now at ASICS.com. But getting back to the, the World Cup races, what's it, you go to Kitzbühel, when do you go to Kitzbühel? How long do you spend there? Is there a lot of waiting around? How does that work, Trevor? Yeah, so the tour starts in, at the end of October. There's a, then there's a break till November. And then start of December, it's kind of racing every weekend through December, through January. February splits up a little bit. Um, so for us as the tech skiers, we will um, show up to the race. Say if it's a weekend race, we're racing Saturday, Sunday. Um, we'll show up on Thursday or Friday. Race Saturday, Sunday. Um, probably stay at the location Sunday night. Drive somewhere Monday to train for the next few days. Um, and then again on Thursday, Friday, drive to the next race location. So it's every one, kind of one to three days, you're moving locations, show up to the weekend, wherever the race is, um, do the one or two races there, and then move on to the next. And where it differs is on the speed side, because in downhill, they have train runs, official runs. So they will be at the location for a full week. They'll train Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then race on the weekend. And uh, yeah, on the tech side, we're much more dynamic and move a lot more. Yeah, and you really kind of get to, you really kind of get the rhythm, like because it you know you're racing on either Saturday, Sunday every week, and so you build up to the weekend. And you have to come down from that level, and that's where you you take a couple of days, like either off snow or just um, put in a little work in the gym, and then you build up again through the week. And sometimes on the Friday, we actually get a chance to free ski just on the hill, get a get a feel for the surface because that's so important for it is. Um, making sure your equipment is dialed in for the type of surface that'll be faced. And that's so dependent on like the way they prep the hill and then also the weather going into the weekend. So um, yeah, and then you build up again and then come back down. And so I find you really can't operate at that super high level throughout the whole season. Otherwise you just burn out. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it's kind of like this roller coaster and you're slowly trying to build up more and more to February because that's when our big event is either every year, either it's the world championship or the Olympics. Nice. Yeah. It's impossible to stay. You need your breaks, just get away from things. And what do you guys do to relax? And you know, you're in, you're in areas, you're in Europe. Where did you say you're in Italy now in, I've seen a picture of a beautiful gym that overlooks, there was a tennis court that overlooked the mountains. Like your locations are spectacular, like central Europe, be it, Italy, Switzerland, Austria is absolutely amazing. Great driving roads up there, but it must be great. What do you guys do to get away from the slopes? Well, for one, I got to say tennis. That's And also it's been great to have uh, Dr. Harmath with us here because she brought tennis back to us. So we, I played a lot growing up and Eric played some, but uh, maybe didn't really have someone to bring us together and let's go hit the court. So that was great to have Dom. It has been great to have Dom this year. We've played quite a few times between Saspe. We spent a month there and there were some beautiful courts. 
um, with the mountains looking over you. We spent, where else were we? I mean, here it's a great place that is tennis courts with the mountains looking through with, uh, I think that's probably the picture you saw. So we've done that quite a bit. Um, what else we get up to? We're, we're always just in mountain towns, right? So it's not never like a big city. So you're always having to be a bit, but what facilities you have access to? Like, obviously we're quite lucky here and we made the most of a conference center with uh, a, a bunch of chairs as our net. So that's <laughs> our tennis court at the moment. But um, usually you can, over the summer, you're out there play, playing a bit of soccer. Spike ball is a big one within our team. And like just kind of getting outside, doing afternoon activities, hiking, stuff like that. And just finding ways to turn your brain off skiing because uh, it's it's so intense out there on the body and on the mind um, that you, you have to turn off and chill. And something I've completely forgotten about, which is probably a good thing. How, how are you coping with the whole uh, Corona, COVID virus? Like I told, I didn't see a mask. So I completely <laughs> forgot about it. And how's traveling? Like I know in tennis, everybody, everybody has stay in bubbles. Are you guys in bubbles or... It seems to be the way you're talking is a bit more open, but I, I don't, I'm just guessing. Yeah, it is. Within our team, because we've been together, I left Ken in July, so I've been over here for many months now. But our team has, has been our bubble. So it's, it's certainly different this year without seeing other teams overlapping, going out for coffees or anything. Um, the region we're in now is fairly locked down, so you can't eat. The cafes are all closed. You can go to the grocery store. Um, the hotel we're at has been only us for the last couple of weeks. So we are very um, aware and conscious of it. Um, just where, when we're just with our team, the people we live with, um, we can be a bit more relaxed. But going out to the hill every day, we're on the gondolas and tramps and chairlifts and in the ski lines, that's all wearing a mask. So we're certainly, since we're outside of our bubble, we're uh, very conscious about it. Yeah, I'm washing your hands. <laughs> <laughs> what they've been trying to do, the events so far is kind of create this pseudo bubble where, um, we don't, we don't have the luxury of other professional sports where they can kind of all centralize together and play the, the hockey championships or the U.S. Open or whatever it is that they're doing. So we're still moving around. And so everyone has to come in um, to the weekend with a negative test. And it's actually created a bit of controversy because um, the girls are racing this weekend up in Finland and uh, the Swedish team, their coach tested positive. And despite the fact that every athlete has tested negative multiple times, the government stepped in and the whole team's in quarantine and they're not allowed to compete. So moving forward, I think we're going to keep seeing that. Uh, our first race, it was uh, the Russians actually weren't allowed to, to compete. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like luck of the draw. Like someone happens to test positive and the whole team gets shut out of whatever event is next. So um, I think we're going to be in a bit of limbo going forward, but um, we're doing our best. Maybe small team is your advantage now. <laughs> less can less can less can go wrong. But in tennis, another topic which is often talked about daily is obviously how many professionals there are and how many can make a living from it. So, first question to you guys is: How many professional skiers are there, and how many do you think actually make a living that cover their expenses? Um, so I. I mean, under the technical definitions, I guess we're all amateurs slash like Olympic skiers. Not no one's truly a professional. No one's salaried. But when you're when you're ranked about top fifteen in the world, you're like able to do quite well. And some of the top uh, skiers over the years have actually transcended the sport, like a Michaela Schifrin, a Lindsey Vaughn, a Bodie Miller. They're kind of the big names in the states. The top thirty level, that's where you kind of start to get um, a decent contract from ski manufacturers and are able to, 
to cover it with your own headgear sponsor. That's where that's kind of our prime real real estate um, to sell ourselves. So that's kind of the level where you're actually making money. And then below that, you can still bring some in, but like there are some costs um, associated with it. Nothing quite like tennis where you're having to pay for your own coach or trainer. Um, the federation takes part, uh, care of that, but definitely kind of squeezed a bit more towards that upper echelon. Yeah, it sounds tough. It sounds only there's a handful of people making money, like making a proper living, like which is which is crazy. But it's really hard. And at what age does like you start thinking, okay, my future? Obviously, because your chance are of earning big money is really hard. So you got to think, okay, well, what's next after skiing? And what for you guys? Do you think of the future? Do you plan for the future? What's next? Yeah, I think oh, I think both of us having been through NCAA and done school, it's not a common thing among people on the circuit. So I think both of us are thinking about it or have thought about it. Um, and speaking personally, I think I'll, I hope I'll be excited to move on when it's time. But to give an exact date or what's going to be the trigger that says now's enough, I'm not sure. For now, still, it's a I mean 100% skiing. But um, my my interest in the academic world or in finance is what I studied is still there and it's still growing. So um, when it comes time, whenever that is, uh, I hope I'll be excited and ready to move on. Yeah, I, I also graduated with a finance degree. Um, and so kind of have that in my pocket now, focused on skiing. And uh, I think now just kind of chipping away at what I can. I know Trevor started doing his uh, CFA. Uh, he finished level one and I'm currently going to write the Canadian security course in the spring. So just kind of resume boosting, building some skills still over the years. But at the moment, skiing is my number one priority. Uh, we're both at that level where we, we can make a bit of money and um, take a great deal of pride in representing the country and you know challenging ourselves and what we can achieve. And I think we both believe we, we have the capability to reach that next level. And we've kind of like tasted it. We've had success in like uh, single events or runs and stuff like that. So um, to get to that next level, I think it's just about finding consistency because uh, skiing, you really have to throw yourself down the hill. You can't kind of take the, the easy way and, and, and just kind of like think your way down or like rely on like your technical ability. You really take that risk. And so it's about finding consistency um, at that next level where you're like just putting it all on the line. Nice. Well, having a university degree is such a big advantage and it does give you a bit of ease of mind. Whether the guys who probably haven't gone to university, probably hitting 31, 32, 33, they're like, okay, what's next? And it can be really tough to make that career transition because, you know, to go back to college is really hard and you don't know what you want to do. I'm sure living on the slopes, I've seen many a ski instructor with their face like is like leather from the sun. In Italy, like anytime I've gone skiing, like it can be a great life but it can be tough on the body but so how much a few more questions here and one is how much of a game changer is an olympic medal in a in a super g let's say what would it do for your career i mean i kind of mentioned it before it's like how you it's a way to transcend the sport and that's where you get kind of widespread um acknowledgement for your your success in skiing the world cup circuit and the world championships that's kind of the big thing every two years and within the sport, the, there, there's a lot of hype and a lot of excitement and a lot of following for it. But to, to kind of get that widespread appeal, within, especially within Canada, um, I think that's where the Olympics is a great opportunity. 
I know when I finished 11th in Pyeongchang, that's when I had the most people reaching out saying, oh my God, I saw you on TV. Congratulations. Like That's so exciting. Because it, it is a challenge for us because a lot of the time you can only uh, stream our races. And the other thing is we're, we're racing at usually 10 a.m. and 1, 1 p.m. European time. So that's the middle of the night back home. So it's it doesn't really provide a great... Um, uh, platform to, to showcase our sport and 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 uh, show Canadians what we can do. So I think that's where the Olympics is is an awesome um, opportunity for us. Nice. Well, look, it, it's 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 all ahead of you. Keep going. And question, short question: What's where's the snow better, Europe or Canada? <laughs> it's it's preference. Uh, for me, I love North American snow. We had uh, one race that we have each year in North America on the tech side is a giant slalom in Beaver Creek in Colorado. And that's always been my favorite. Uh, probably partly because that's where I, we both spent four years of school. So if there's always friends of that race and family um, that come down from Canada, but also the snow there is uh, something that increased within my skiing. So I love the North Americans. So. If you're looking to like get a kink in your neck from looking at the vistas in the Dolomites or Switzerland like that, that's where you want to be. But if you're like a powder junkie, then North America just doesn't compare to anywhere else. It's it's so much better there, like Revelstoke or Colorado, California. Um, that's where you, all the, the best backcountry skiing is from our experience now. And you guys are near Banff, are you? Yeah, both. From, yeah, exactly. From Calgary. So just over an hour away from Banff. Um, yeah, we had weekend homes up there and did our skiing, our training there. Is it as nice as it looks in the photos? I've seen like some YouTubers like Peter McKinnon. I'm not sure if you know him. He puts up loads of videos and I see it's beautiful. Is it that nice really? Yeah, it's it's definitely overrun with tourists. <laughs> uh, maybe not right in the COVID times, but um, yeah, it, it's an amazing place to live. And uh, Norway, where we both grew up, lo- overlooks the town of Banff and uh, it, it's pretty special there. And uh, I think most locals usually... Um, avoid BAMP actually because it's so okay. overrun but um, yeah I, I, I think we both love where we come from and the town I'm in is uh, 10 minutes away called Canmore but the whole so the whole valley is Bull Valley and it's beautiful really nice mountains there if I ever go over I'll reach out to you to see where all the locals go not where the tourists go but so <laughs> what, what's it like competing and beating the Americans <laughs> well I mean let me go out there it's it's to do the best you can and to beat everyone. You know, I mean, you got friends on a lot of the different countries, a lot of the different nations. You Over the years, you see the same people over and over. Um, so there's a lot of friendships out there, but certainly on the race day, on those kind of minute and a half that you're on the course, the first run and second run, it's about yourself and pushing your own run to the limit to see how well you can do. Um, to have teammates out there doing well is like, for sure you support each other and you want uh, each other to do well. And that's, where, I mean, it's great to have teammates doing well because it kind of can push you up or pull you up. Um, but, and with the other teams, it's a, it's a friendship, but it's also competitive. So to, yeah, with the Americans and other teams, sometimes we'll train together, which is to, to get a little pace or to see where you're at before a race actually happens to do some runs with the Swiss team or something um, would be highly valuable. Um, but when you're out there, it's, uh, yeah, yourself, you and try and push and do the best you can. I think it's almost like a friendly rivalry though between the Canadians and the Americans because we both, we grew up racing on that kind of North American circuit before reaching the World Cup. And so you're both in it together against the uh, the, the Europeans, especially the big ski nations. Um, and it's interesting because you'll get certain uh, snow conditions where 
the Canadians and the Americans will actually do a lot better. And it's more similar to kind of that dry snow that we were familiar with back home versus kind of the, the soft, wet, spring-like stuff you more often see in Europe. Okay. And is, is it the, like it's the North Americans versus the Europeans versus the Russians? Is it, or is, are, are the Russians part of Europe or are they not part of Europe? I don't know. I, I'm not sure where I break it down uh, exactly. But for sure, North America, you can kind of group them together just because that we're the ones that have to be over in Europe for the whole winter. Uh, we have an opportunity next week. Next week's our next World Cup in uh, Lech, Austria. And that's a parallel. It's the head, head-to-head one we maybe didn't talk about earlier. It's not one of the four main ones, but it's one that um, Alpine Skiing has been pushing, kind of to draw some more um, viewers. And it's, it's set up like a tennis draw. So you have, it's like you're against one person, there's two courses next to each other, and it's a head-to-head racing. So if you beat that one person, you go to the next round. So that can be pretty fun. It can be fun to watch. It can be fun to do. Um, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll try that out next week. Next Thursday are the women and Friday are the men in Austria. Nice. That's going to be exciting. And last question, the high jumpers, how crazy are those guys? <laughs> or long, jumper, jumper. long jumpers, sorry. Long, is that what they call long jumpers? Long Ski jumpers, ski, like ski flying? Yeah, those guys are crazy. <laughs> like. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we both went to a sports school, so we got to know other sports. And there's a couple of long, or so they're in their they're a strange crowd. <laughs> yeah, they're crazy. Like I, a bit of me would like to do it, but I'd probably like end up breaking every bone in my body. But have you? I've seen some of the. It must be the super G accidents where people they go through the fence and they end up half a mile down the mountain. There's a bit few less accidents that you're in more the middle core stuff. Yeah, that's a big difference between uh, a tech skier and a speed skier. Is they they have to be very careful with lethality because there's a chance that you crash, and there there have been very severe injuries and actually deaths over the years. Um, I think safety's improved a ton, but uh, we're fortunate enough that if we crash, ninety nine times out of hundred, we'll be able to pick ourselves up again, um, just because we don't have the same speed and forces as uh, downhillers where they're flying. Uh, I mean, I think the, the record that was set a few years ago was 160 kilometers an hour, the top speed. So <laughs> we're, we're, going to, we're going a bit slower, kind of maxing out at about 70, 80, 90. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a violent sport. And also training is tough on the body. Um, even though you go out there, you only ski a total of, I would say, like between five to eight minutes in a session. It's just, it's so hard on the body. And I know Dom can attest to this uh, she's trying to uh, put us together day, but <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a tough sport, but it's so much fun. And there's, there's like adrenaline and uh, it, it's kind of like if you're, if you're out there cliff jumping and you, there's that moment where you like kind of run off the cliff and like really commit to the gravity. That's what every turn feels like. It's kind of like throwing yourself out there and um, kind of trusting yourself and using the natural forces to, to build speed. Yeah, no, I love those photos of the clips where they're they're turning corners and you know they're they're nearly touch their whole body's nearly touching the snow. You're like, how do they do that? It's crazy. But uh, guys, thank you very much for coming on. Good luck next week in the in the event. I can't remember the name of it in the the event, the draw event. The, the parallel, it's a parallel race. The parallel, so that's going to be exciting. Uh, I'll try. I'll get an update off Dom. See how you get on. So big, ex- big expectations from you next weekend. But thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of 
uh, the tour in Europe. I hope sometimes you get the, the, the Europeans coming over to you guys. It's a bit like the friend who, you know, they always want you to go over to their house. Like, why don't you come over to my house sometime? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, thanks. Really good. Uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. We'll continue to follow your uh, social page. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to see what you're posting on there. Super thanks to Trevor and Eric. It was great to see life inside of a different sport. Also, a big thanks to Domi, their physio, who helped arrange this. Super thanks. She's a great follower of Functional Tennis and she puts up some good content that we like to share. So thank you very much. Also, would love to know if you guys enjoyed it or didn't. I think if you're still listening now, you must have enjoyed it. And if you didn't, I don't think you'd be listening. But uh, please send me an email with any feedback whatsoever to ace at functionaltennis.com or you can message me over on Instagram at the Functional Tennis account or the Functional Tennis podcast account. I'd love to do more of these, as I mentioned, but I want to make sure you guys enjoyed it. And yeah, thanks a lot. I'll be back in a few days with another episode. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye.